Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you will hear a talk from a past Grace Agenda conference from Douglas Wilson titled, Apologetics Without Apology. If you're interested in the content of this talk, I wanted to recommend a book from our shelf called, The Amazing Dr. Ransom's Bestiary of Adorable Fallacies. This hilariously funny book on informal fallacies is the best introduction to logic that there is. Authors Douglas Wilson and N.D. Wilson have crafted a field guide for clear thinkers. It's filled with illustrations, descriptions, exercises, and analysis to help you identify and avoid fallacies you might encounter in everyday life. I can't recommend this book enough for you and your family. You can get it today at canonpress.com. And uh, everything we've been hearing, the high-level uh, worlds in collision uh, messages we've been hearing about, at the end of the day, come down often to one-on-one conversations that you have with people or small group discussions. And count, if you do open-air evangelism, if you do um, contact evangelism, you're going to encounter people who are uh, immersed in this other alien way of thinking. They're thoroughly at peace with the zeitgeist, with the the way our current age is, and you're going to find yourself talking to them, and you have to say, what, how do I, how do I talk to them? How, how do I go into this? How do I conduct uh, Christian apologetics, which is apologetics slash evangelism, in a way that doesn't give away the store, in a way that is um, consistent with what you say you believe? So if I could begin with an illustration. Um, Let's say it. Um, let's say a mugger, someone with a gun, is um, out for an evening holding people up, and he comes up to one guy behind a guy and sticks the gun in his back and says, "Your money or your life." And the victim laughs nonchalantly and says, "Well, I'm afraid we have a problem here, but you can't do that. I don't believe in guns." Now suppose the mugger turned embarrassed, got red, flushed, red, and put the gun away, and said, I'm I'm sorry, I didn't realize you didn't believe in guns, (laughs) and shuffles off trying to find someone who believes in guns that he can. Now, is the problem problem that we, we have is a breakdown in the scenario, right? Is the problem that the victim didn't believe in guns? No, the problem there is that the mugger doesn't believe in guns. The guy with the gun doesn't believe in guns. Okay? You're talking to a non-believer and you say, uh, uh, well, the Word of God says, and they say, uh, uh, I don't believe in the Bible. And we say, oh, put it away, shuffle off, just like a stupid mugger. The problem is not, the problem is not that he doesn't believe in the Bible. The problem is that you don't believe in the Bible. That's what it boils down to. If you're the shame-faced mugger who puts the gun away, um, the problem is not that the other guy doesn't believe in the Bible. The problem is that you don't believe in the Bible. That's the problem. If if someone says to you, "Uh, uh, you can't do that to me. You You can't cite that passage to me. I don't believe in the Bible. You should say, well, it's funny you should say that because the Word of God says right over here. We have to believe what we say we believe. We have to believe... What we say we believe. So, 
Apologetics without apology. What is it that we believe? What are we assuming in every apologetic encounter? You have to realize that you've got two worlds. This is a worlds in collision setup. You've got two worlds, the world that God says we're living in and the world that the world says we're living in. One of them is the way, is the world we're living in. We're not living in both of them, right? We're living in, there, there is a way things actually are. We are living in the world as it actually is, and we're living in the world that God made. And God has told us how he has made it. God, God has framed it, and he's explained it to us. So I want to talk about some of the fundamental assumptions that we have to make and carry through every evangelistic encounter and every apologetics encounter. I have to begin by explaining that I do understand that an abusive ad hominem is a logical fallacy. Um, that, that's where you, instead of arguing with a person, dealing with his, his uh, arguments, you call them names. There's no reason to think that you've refuted someone's arguments simply because you vigorously attack their person. There is another fallacy closely related to the ad hominem, dubbed bulverism by C.S. Lewis. He pointed out the modern tendency to dismiss an argument on no stronger grounds than the fact that you explained how your opponent came to be so silly. If you explain how a person got to his position, that's not the same thing as answering his position. But even though an ad hominem uh, is a logical fallacy, it doesn't follow that there's no connection between lifestyle and truth. It is inadequate to argue that the atheism of Smith cannot be true because he kicks his dog. If he offers arguments, then the arguments should be addressed. A thorough apologetic method will address arguments while at the same time understanding and taking into account their source. All right, you have to do both. Why? As Christians, our intellectual object is to think God's thoughts after him. Our aim must not be a false humanist, humanistic originality, but rather, in one sense, the, our, our fundamental task is submission to the way things are. How did God make the world? How, do I, how can I line myself up with how God made the world? I want to submit to the way things are, not, not the way sin has wrecked the world, but the way God made the world in his creational intent. This is because we believe that the world is the way it is because of the creator and sustainer of all things. But if truth is to be found through submission to God's truth, then does it not become a matter of concern if someone claims to have found truth but is living in open defiance of God's law? If the world is what God made and the world is the way God says it is and someone is living in a way contrary to that, how, how is their rebellion not relevant, uh, a relevant issue in our discussion? For example, Karl Marx engaged in a prolonged, shrill, and bitter argument with reality. The poet Shelley was a lifelong absconder and cheat. The existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre was a notorious exploiter of women. Most notably was his mistress, Simone de Beauvoir, 
quote, this is from Paul Johnson's Intellectuals. In all essentials, Sartre treated her no better than Rousseau did his Therese. Worse, because he was notoriously unfaithful. In the annals of literature, there are few worse cases of a man exploiting a woman. This was all the more extraordinary because de Beauvoir was a lifelong feminist. So she's a lifelong feminist. Sartre is a darling of the intellectual left. And he, he was just a pig to women. He was just he was that way. I don't have Heidegger down here, but Heidegger was a Nazi. It would not be at all difficult to fill a volume with names of men and women who shook their fists at heaven with less than altruistic motives. Now, it's quite true that the ethical standards of a man do not have a direct bearing on his opinion that two plus two equals four, or that the sun rises in the east. All right, that's true. But suppose that the subject of debate is rather, rather than is two plus two equal four, uh, rather than that, or uh, does the sun rise in the east, but suppose we're debating the existence and reality of a judge. Suppose that's the, that's the topic of debate. The debate is whether there's one who will weigh and evaluate the thoughts and deeds of the sons of men and cast those who hate him into the outer darkness. That is the proposition before the house. God will cast adulterers into hell. Now, does that put adulterers in a difficult position in the debate? Well, whatever position it puts them in, it's not a disinterested position. Okay? If, if we're debating, does two and two equal four, and I've got an adulterer and a non-adulterer, you can see, at least on the surface, how this debate could be conducted in a disinterested fashion. Now, I think there are ramifications that go all the way to the bottom, all the way to the bottom, even there. But if an adulterer and a non-adulterer are debating whether God will throw adulterers into hell, it's not a disinterested, disengaged discussion. Okay? Is the lifestyle of the participants really irrelevant then? In other words, are the accused qualified to give judgments about the existence of the judge? Are the accused in a position to give disinterested, a, a, a disinterested evaluation of the existence of the judge? The heart of the problem is the heart. The heart of the problem is the heart. And so when you're in a discussion with someone who's claiming to, I don't, I don't find the evidence for God compelling, you need to ask yourself, are you the mugger putting away the gun or are you the mugger using the gun? Are you? He says, well, I, I frankly don't find um, any of your arguments compelling. Well, in actual fact, the Word of God says he finds virtually all of them compelling, and he's trying to get you to shut up and go away. And he says, oh, I, you, you, I'll never become a Christian. You know, you can't, you can't bother me. And we listen to him, we believe him, when he's lying to God and to himself and to you, and we listen to him. The heart of the problem is the heart. Romans 1, 18 through 22. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's what non-believers are doing. They're suppressing truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. They, in other words, you're not trying to persuade people of the truth of what you're saying. They know the truth of what you're saying. They know it. They're suppressing. You can't suppress something you don't have. 
okay? So, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools. Now, this passage makes a number of claims about the, the epistemic condition of every unbeliever. They know, when you, when you speak the truth to an unbeliever, there's something in them that resonates with what you just said, and they don't like it, right? But it resonates. Change the image for a minute. Uh, a redefinition of apologetics. The non-believer has been given the knowledge of God. We'll call the knowledge of God an overinflated beach ball, which they are holding underwater. They're standing in the pool holding this overinflated beach ball underwater, and their arms are quivering. The apologist's job is to poke the arms. <laughs> hey, friend. <laughs> How's it going? Because the Bible, the Bible says they know. They know God, they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, and they're doing it because they want to continue in unrighteousness. A moral problem, a moral problem, not an intellectual problem, a moral problem, which is refusal to glorify God as God, and refusal to thank God, two, two points, refusal to glorify God as God, refusal to recognize the godness of God, and secondly, a refusal to thank God is the cause of the intellectual problem. There is an intellectual problem, but the intellectual fog is caused by rebellion. It's not the other way around. All right? Rebellion causes intellectual darkness. Our ethical condition cannot be preserved and protected through the intellect. Let me say that again. Our our ethical condition cannot be preserved and protected through the intellect. The two are connected, but not in the way Christians have frequently assumed. We are to protect our intellect through our standing before God. The reason unbelievers do not believe has nothing to do with the lack of arguments. Rather, their lack of a desire to hear the arguments for the truth of Christianity is the result of unbelief. We sometimes approach evangelistic apologetics as though unregenerate men did not love their sin. And that's a breakdown in your approach. We sometimes approach apologetics as though unregenerate men did not love sin. We speak and act as though an intellectual defense of the faith will somehow impart to the rebellious a desire for holiness. It does not. We argue with them, assuming that they would want to submit to the truth if only they knew it to be the truth. But they do know it to be the truth. They, do, they know that. They don't want to submit to it, Romans 1.28. At this point, many evangelists and apologists may be tempted to walk, in, walk away in despair. If, if that's the case, what's the point? Right? If they love their, how can I preach to people who love their sin? Well, Preaching is God's instrument that he designed, 
in order to speak to people who love their sin. Okay? That's that the, the preaching of the cross does something to them without their permission. Okay? That, that what you're dealing with when you're poking arms, you're dealing with them apart from their permission. Like Ezekiel, they are uncertain about the efficacy of prophesying to bones. So, Ezekiel, prophesy to the bones. You preach to the bones. Son of man, shall these bones live? Sovereign Lord, you know. Preach to the bones. Okay? But, Lord, they can't, every head is not bowed. Every eye is not closed. Their sockets are just open. Raise your hand. Yes, I see that. I see that bony thing. You're not, the evangelist is not walking through a hospital ward trying to convince people to take the medicine. You're walking through a graveyard preaching to bones. And, and, and you say, well, how can they be in rebellion and bones at the same time? Well, um, it says that we were, in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, it says we were dead in trespasses and sins in which we used to live. Okay, you put those two together. We're walking around in death. We, this world is full of the walking dead. Okay, this is a zombie movie. And, and they are walking around in a condition of death They're actively making choices. They love their sin. And you have to preach to them, speak to them in a way that reflects your faith in the word of God as given. Because they they don't have the same kind of faith. They know it's powerful and they reject it. They need to encounter someone who knows it's powerful and acknowledges it, accepts it, preaches it. Obedience protects the intellect. Credo ut intelligam. I believe that I might understand. If I refuse to believe, then ultimately I'm refusing to understand. The testimony of Scripture is that ethical rebellion produces intellectual darkness. It is false to say that we can protect our lives with arguments. Rather, we protect the reliability and integrity of argument by how we live our lives. You do not protect your life with argument. You protect your argument with life. Live before God. Live like a Christian, and you will retain your ability to reason. If you give way to your lusts, if you start chasing idols, if you start giving way to to the licentiousness of of the flesh, you're going to lose your mind, as Western culture has lost its mind. We have lost our minds. Why? Because of lust. It's, this is lust fog. Everything about it is lust fog. So, the disobedient will eventually search out arguments uh, that will justify them in their disobedience. They will eventually search out, search out arguments. Because no such argument can be both true and valid, it will not be long before the rebellious begin to attack argument itself i.e., your false Aristotelian categories. Um, They're going to attack logic. They're going to attack reason itself. Christianity is initially rejected in the name of reason, but apart from Christianity, reason collapses into an irrationalism of despair. So uh, the, the exaltation of humanistic reason has wound up in this, this frenzy of irrationality. 
That's, that's what happens when you, when you worship any idol, you eventually lose the idol you worship. If, you wor- you know, if, you're, if you're a glutton, you eventually, glutton and a wine bibber, you eventually lose your ability to enjoy food and drink. If you pursue uh, sexual license, you lose your ability to enjoy that. Every, everything you worship, everything you put in place of God, you're eventually going to lose that thing. And if you place reason in place of God, you're going to lose your mind. That's what's going to happen. This is why a revival of godliness will always produce a revival of learning. It does not flow the other way. Learning does not produce godliness. Knowledge puffs up. But love builds up, and one of the things that builds up is knowledge. Right, so you get that? Knowledge by itself puffs up. Puffs up. Love builds up. But uh, knowledge is included in what is built up. This is also why an abandonment of godliness will eventually destroy learning. The process begins with folly disguised as scholarship and learning, i.e. the folly is festooned with footnotes. Eventually, when the bankruptcy becomes evident to all, then scholarship itself will be denounced. That's what's happening in our universities. Uh, Our universities, it it began first in, in the humanities, but the rot is spreading everywhere. And... It's just, I remember years ago, um, I was on a panel, education panel on the East Coast somewhere, and I I told a story about um, how we, one time at Logos School, we were hiring a Christian student who had graduated from WSU Teachers College. We were interviewing him to teach at Logos. And I asked him during the interview if a child, if you you spelled out H O R S E, and a child looked at that and said, that says pony, what would you say? And this Christian student, graduate of Wazoo, said, I'd say, well, good job. Way to, way to go. I, and what I, was, I asked the question to see if he was, had bought into the anti-phonics, look, say, foolishness. I want, you're a Christian. You've just come out of a government-run teacher's college. How good were your filters when you were going through this? I told this story, and, and, and his filters were clogged. He, you know, he, he, he hadn't done a good job sorting this all out. And so I, was, I told that story on this panel, and I said, it's not, it's not long before that's going to get over to the math department, right? Um, two plus two equals, well, Johnny, how much do you want it to equal? Training in dishonest accounting. <laughs> Dishonest tax attorney. What do you want the answer to be? <laughs> and, uh, you know, because there's, if there is no truth, how can you have an answer to a math problem be true? If there is no truth, how can and this answer be right and that, that answer be wrong? So I was doing this reductio ad absurdum, but there was another guy in the panel who was a math teacher from Canada, and he said, I've got bad news for you. You were using it as a ridiculous example, but that's the way it is in my school now. Right. In other words, there is no right answer because we hate truth. We just hate the very idea of truth. Right. We, and we can't do anything else. And they know the irrationality of what they're doing. They're suppressing, the, they're denying truth on the one hand. What's coming out of their head is a denial of the truth, but they're holding the truth down at the same time. Okay? They're conflicted, in other words. And you, sh- you, need to be, you need to believe God about how conflicted they are when you're talking to them. Now, given this relationship between godliness and the intellect, 
The manner that we display in the presentation of truth is important. In 2 Timothy 2, 23 through 26, we are instructed to correct in humility those who oppose us with hope that God will grant repentance. The sovereign God uses means in the salvation of the rebellious, and one of those means is humble instruction from the godly. In particular, the apologist should cultivate two things in his demeanor as he talks with those who are in the Romans 1 mold, and virtually everyone you meet will be in the Romans 1 mold. But notice, Paul tells us what, what aspects of the truth are being suppressed. And so, as you're poking the arms, you're, w- w- those are the things that you should be highlighting. The things that they want to go away are the things you want to be front and center. His demeanor should address the true areas, the two areas identified in that passage as being the heart of the problem. The refusal to honor God as God and the refusal to give thanks. So first, the apologist must be filled with an understanding of the majesty of God. If the rebellion of the one before you comes from willful blindness of his majesty, then how can, that, how can he be helped by an evangelist with the same problem? If he's being blind to the majesty of God and the evangelist and the apologist is blind to the majesty of God, how, if the blind lead the blind, they both fall into the ditch. The triviality, triteness, and silliness which characterizes much of evangelical Christianity will not be successfully covered with the whitewash of some argument. Why is it that our modern declarations of evangelical truth lack the triumphant and majestic tone of the, of the prophet Isaiah? Have you not known, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. We are presenting that God to the people who want nothing to do with that God, right? They, they've grown accustomed to the cozy God that lives somewhere in the mezzanine above you know, uh, uh, worship centers. You, we're talking about the maker of heaven and earth, right? that, and we need to be aware of the fact that that's what we're talking about. This sense of God's grandeur has been lost from the church at large because of the widespread rejection of the biblical understanding of who God really is. Nothing empties a man of himself quite so much as the realization that God is God in everything and cannot be replaced by a creature in anything, including the creature's salvation. God is God everywhere. God is God all the time. God is God all the way down. And God, the, the, the transcendent and the imminent God, the God who is omnipresent in the creation, is not identified with the creation. So do not muddle up the doctrine of God's omnipresence with some form of pantheism or panentheism. God is not identified with the created order at all, but God is God over every square inch of it, all right? So second, so God is God, the godness of God, the authority of God, the sovereignty of God, the glory of God. The second thing is the apologist must be filled with thanksgiving and gratitude, filled with thanksgiving and gratitude. Again, because the rebellion of man is rooted in a refusal to thank God, the more he is exposed to thankful Christians, the better. The more he's exposed to thankful Christians, the better. The mystery of thanklessness, the mystery of ingratitude begins early. 
Who among us, who among us has not seen some puffy-faced, rebellious child refusing to thank some adult for something or other? Just, I don't want to. I don't want to. Thankful, being thankful is being submissive, and I don't want that. Uh, being, in, uh, being ungrateful is, is prideful, we, and we're given to pride. There's something in the sinful nature of man which does not want indebtedness. And saying thank you to God is an intolerable indication of indebtedness. And so what ha- should happen in your conversations with unbelieving co-workers or unbelieving neighbors or you know, unbelievers in family reunions, you need to say, what can I do to have my life and my demeanor, not, not how can I steer this conversation into, say, uh, what's, your state of, what's the state of your soul before God? There's a place for that. But I'm talking about a pervasive attitude and tone through the whole thing. How can I live with an awareness of the majesty of God in the presence of this person who is trying to deny the majesty of God, and how can, I, uh, how can I overflow with gratitude in the presence of this person who wants to be ungrateful all the time? Gratitude is easier. Both are essential, I think. But the gratitude is easier because everybody around you loves to complain. And what you need to do is not complain. Number one, not complain. And number two, be grateful for things that, you know, when the waitress... You're out to lunch with some coworkers, and and they uh, and they bring a little bowl of little pats of butter, and you say, "Aren't you grateful?" These little butter things, and you peel the paper off, and there's your butter. And I put it on my roll. <laughs> Let's give thanks. So, isn't this a glorious day? Isn't this wonderful? This is a good sandwich. This is really good. Is it, uh, man, and we, have you ever thought that when we walk back to the office, we can walk on our feet? This is just amazing. This day is one thing after another. If these two, if these two attitudes are present, then they're going to be used by God to convict the hearer of his basic problem. This is not to say that words are unimportant, the propositions are important, the gospel is important. The words of truth are the nail which must be driven into the heart. The submission of the evangelist to God as God, along with his gratitude, would be the hammer. All right, so the words of the word, the propositional words of the gospel are one thing. The thing that drives it into the person's heart is the demeanor, the demeanor of the evangelist. He is the one, God is the one who gives repentance. And so you sum it, sum it up as Calvinistic gratitude, overflowing Calvinistic gratitude. Now, uh, don't, don't fall for the trap of Calvinism has got to be dour and grim and severe. Uh, that's, not, that's a caricature. That's a cartoon. We don't, don't want anything to do with that cartoon. It's crucial to remember that evangelism and consequently faithful apologetics as well may be, may be divided into two aspects, law and gospel. I'm using them here with the classic Reformed understanding. Much modern evangelism does not bear fruit simply because these elements are neglected or they are twisted. When law comes to an unregenerate man, he always does two things. He acknowledges it as true, and he hates it as true. It's not our position to seek to persuade him 
that he has an obligation to honor God as God and to thank him. He already knows this. That's what he's suppressing. It's a truth which, which he is suppressing in unrighteousness. Consequently, the individual hears the law everywhere in the creation, in his own wicked heart, and from the evangelist. In other words, we should not seek to get the person to whom we are witnessing to verbally agree to the biblical view of man. He is the way God has made him, whether he agrees to it or not. So the, he says, I am the end product of so many millennia of uh, so much uh, so many centuries of time and chance acting on matter that is what i am god says no you're creating the image of god and you're rebelling against him which one's true is what he's saying about himself true or is what god's saying about him true well you believe that what god says about him is true and he's denying it well don't secretly join with him in the denial right don't don't agree with him that that's what you are. He's, no, he's created in the image of God the whole time. So we must assume the biblical view of man. We speak on this basis. As we speak, we know that the one who hears knows at some level that we are speaking the truth. This is true however much he has suppressed it. It is on the basis of this that God judges men who reject the gospel. They rejected it, knowing it to be true. The way many Christians conduct their evangelism it is as though they believe at the last day the men who stand before God will not be without excuse. But the Bible says they're without excuse. So we're not, we're not seeking to win, win men who are honestly unpersuaded. We're sinners. That means at some fundamental level, we're dishonestly persuaded. And at, at some deep level, when the truth is proclaimed, it resonates. The content of our communication should revolve around two things. And again, these are the two points at which men are rebelling. First, we must not be hesitant to speak of God as God. He is the sovereign creator and sustainer of all things. We must not speak of a higher power, however man conceive, conceives him her it to be. We are Christians who serve the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, not devotees of some fuzzy benevolence in the sky. But as we speak of God, we must be clear that these words have very clear definitions and that the definitions are not man-flatterers. God knows everything. He oversees everything. He brought everything into existence. He is holy, righteous, and good. He is a severe judge and a loving Savior. He is present everywhere. The whole earth is full of his glory. From him, through him, and to him, all, and to him are all things. The 24 elders need to spend more time on their faces. So this God is God. God is glorious. Second, we must emphasize overtly the obligations of all creatures to render thanks to God. Everything that has breath is to praise the Lord. Psalm 150, verse 6. Notice in the Psalms how, how often every, everything is invited to express gratitude. Sun, moon, stars, people, nations, everybody, come, sing praises to God. Too often, Christians assert that God is the creator without going, to, going on to apply the obvious ethical response, which is thanksgiving. Suppose for a moment, suppose for a moment that we gave all the engineers and scientists in the world a titanic budget and the following task, to come up with a functional human hand with all the options. A hand that would grow calluses when used playing the guitar or working on anything else, 
that would repair it. It has a built-in repair kit inside that if you cut it, uh, uh, you know, mysterious forces inside come up to the surface and, and make it heal over the course of a week, move with the dexterity of an accomplished pianist, and so forth. These scientists and these scientists and engineers could not do that with all the resources in the world. They, they couldn't do it. And when I wrote these notes, I was sitting in my word processor typing away with two of them. And they were free. <laughs> given to me. Where did I get these things? What are they made out of? Peanut butter sandwiches mostly, I think, growing. You know. <laughs> and then you look, you go from, and why did God give us fingernails? To pick up dimes. <laughs> ah, the Lord said. At some point, they'll have to pick up dimes. <laughs> so we should, we should, you're standing in the shower, hot and cold running water. Glory to God. Glory to God. The food is hot. Glory to God. I can, I can put something in the microwave and, and, and it's hot in 60 seconds. Too hot, in fact. <laughs> glory, glory to God. Just... What you want to do is be looking at absolutely everything with an exuberant Chestertonian gratitude because God is, God is good to us all day long, all the time, in millions of ways. Every moment of every day, how many diseases are, is your body fighting off right now? What's your liver, liver doing for you right now? What kind of engineering went into your ankles? And then you look at the, the human eye, what the human eye can do and what happens when you have just one of them. And how, how can you have depth perception? And, and you look at any square inch of life, a square inch of your lawn, your front lawn, a square inch of bark on a tree, and you have cask, a cascading um, torrent of mysteries. You, you, could, you could spend the rest of your life writing thousands of books on that one square inch of your lawn because of everything that's going on. And God just gave it to you, just gives it to you. Everything just given. We as creatures have an obligation to thank God. Those in rebellion who do not thank God need to be reminded of the obligation. God is God. He is not like we are. God is good. He daily gives to each of us, Christians and non-Christians alike, far more gifts than we can even keep track of. Matthew 5.45. As we testify to these things, the testimony has the force of law. It does what the law is supposed to do, which is to increase and reveal transgression. Romans 3.20 and Romans 5.20. It condemns. It's no wonder these truths are suppressed. For non-Christians, there's no good news at all yet. But after law comes the gospel. The message of the cross and resurrection reconciles sinners to God. And part of this reconciliation is the dispelling of intellectual darkness. The futility of thinking is gone because the hardness of heart which produced it is gone. Hard hearts make for soft heads. Because the Spirit of God has taken away the heart of stone, the way a man thinks is altered forever. Everything is not done all at once, but the process has begun. Because the rebellion is over, the process of the renewal of the mind 
is established, which is Romans 12, 1 and 2. So, to wrap up, this is not a cold intellectualism. 1 Peter 3.15 instructs, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Good reasons, good defense, come from good hearts. Good reasons, good defenses, good arguments come from good hearts. If I'm only prepared intellectually, I'm not prepared intellectually. If all I've got is from books, then I don't have anything. The representative of Christianity must have sanctified the Lord in his heart. He must have a good conscience, and then he must give his defense, his apology, his apologia, and his reason for hope. The one, to whom he, the one to whom he speaks has not sanctified the Lord in his heart and does not have a good conscience. That is why he's in intellectual darkness. As mentioned, uh, mentioned earlier, the popular dichotomy between the head and the heart is a false one. But to use the, the terms assumed by it for a moment, if someone concerned for heart religion rejects the importance of doctrine, the problem is not in his head. The problem is in his heart. It is not bearing the, fr the proper fruit. This is because if a man sanctifies the Lord in his heart, the result will be defenses, arguments, and reasons. All right? Do you, do you see that? I, I, can't, I can't get there by defenses, arguments, and reasons. But if I sanctify the Lord in my heart, it's going to, it's going to give me my mind. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your brains, and all your strength. But you, it's got to start here. It starts at the heart and works its way out. You can't get to the heart through the brains. But you, if you get to the heart, you will get to the brains. And if, you, and if it doesn't affect loving God with your mind, then it's, you're not really dealing with the heart. So if a, there are many Christians who want to have a truncated, simple religion. No creed but Christ, no law but love. There are many responses you no know, creed but Christ. I would say, first, that's a nice little creed there. Did you, no creed but Christ. No, it just rolled. It's a great little creed. Which which council approved did that? Uh, it was a committee back in that founded our soup kitchen back in the fifties. Well, first, that's that's a creed. Number two, no creed but Christ. I'd say, great, who's this Christ? Who, who is he? Who are you talking about? You have, to, you, have to be, you have to be prepared to answer questions. You can't just assume that you can assert things and have everybody say, oh, and not follow. There, there, you're, there's going to be an engaging Q&A session. All right, so you have, to, you have to get into sound doctrine. You have to pursue, as far as the Bible pursues it, you should pursue it. All right? And you should be getting your answers from the text, and you shouldn't be afraid to ask and answer hard questions. If a Christian apologist who is into sound doctrine lives a life that's an ethical stretcher case, then the problem in his heart will eventually show up in his thinking. We cannot seal off one part of us from another. One of the reasons when we look at all the encroachments that neo-paganism is making in the church, right, and there are a lot of them, 
And I'm not sure that we can really refuse to rent the church to a loving couple, homosexual couple. I'm not sure that we can really say, you know, whenever you see, whenever you see any kind of waffling and noodling and backfilling and all that stuff going on, you can depend upon it that this occasion is not the first instance of the compromise. It's the first visible instance of the compromise. It's the first visible instance. So you want to say, okay, uh, when, you rent, when you rent your sanctuary to the, for the first homosexual marriage, what I want to know is how many years of porn use were rampant in that congregation before that? Before that. What was all going on under the surface? Because if, if you're... If your Christian life is in tatters, then at some point it's going to erupt. At some point it's going to come out uh, in, in the Psalms. Uh, Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep me from presumptuous sins. Then I will be innocent of the great transgression. All right, what we're dealing with in church after church after church is eruptions of the great transgression. Uh, they set up a, a big statue of Baal in the narthex. And we're having an emergency meeting. This is, and, and some of us are wondering why we're even having to debate having a bail in the narthex. Because it seems to us that this goes without saying that we shouldn't be doing this. And I would say, yeah, okay, great transgression. Is that a great transgression? Yes. That's why, that's why it's appalling me. It's such a great trans, transgression. But we should be asking, well, how many presumptuous sins? How many secret faults? For how many decades, for how many decades, how many things were hushed up? How many things were just quieted, not dealt with biblically? How many, things, how many ch cases of church discipline dropped to the ground and were not pursued? How many, how many compromises that were not big controversies led to this one? Okay? That's, a, that's just the way, it, that's the way God has determined the world's going to run. So, we can't seal off one part of our life from another. When people get out of biblical balance, they lose, the, they lose the very thing that they deem most important. Pharisees worshiped the law, but in, fact, in effect destroyed it. Pietists say that we must concentrate on the heart, but the result is a heart that doesn't produce fruit anymore. In the name of clean hearts, they produce rotten ones. Our more intellectual brethren neglect the heart and consequently are really neglecting the head. In the name of sound minds, they destroy the basis and foundation of all clear thinking, which is practical obedience. Practical, straight-up-the-middle obedience. Jesus is Lord. Shall we, do what we, shall we do what he says? Jesus is Lord. Let's do what he says. Now, we're not going to work our way to heaven that way, but we have confessed that Jesus is Lord. We've had our sins Forgiven, we've all gathered together to sing praises to him. He's Lord. I tell you what, let's do what he says. Let's do what he says. Just that. The Bible teaches that intellectual darkness, intellectual darkness is the, is the result of rebellion, not the cause of it. Those who have been brought out of darkness have a responsibility to speak to those who are still in it. As they speak, it is crucial to realize the source of intellectual darkness and to address it through the demeanor of the speaker, the content of what is said. And the demeanor of the speaker is directly related to the life of the speaker, 
the life of the evangelist, the demeanor of the evangelist, not just put a smiley face on it. It's live like a Christian. Live like a Christian in your interaction with your wife. Live like a Christian as you deal with your kids. Live like a Christian in everything. Every, Jesus is Lord in every area of life. Live like a Christian there and have that come out in your demeanor and then have it come out in the content of what you want to say to the unbeliever. If the apologist displays God's character and demonstrates thankfulness to him, then it is far more likely that God's mercy will be demonstrated. Back in the Timothy passage, you do these things not because you're putting nickel, you're not because you're putting coins in a vending machine. When you're evangelizing, you're not putting coins in a vending, you're not buying a product. But you're doing certain things in the hope. You're doing certain things in the hope that God will grant repentance. And God tells us to do these things in that hope, meaning he's more likely to grant repentance to the unbeliever when we're doing what we're told than if we're, if we're disobeying. So the apologist should display God's character and demonstrate faithful, grateful, uh, grateful thankfulness to him. Then it's far more likely that God's mercy is going to be demonstrated. These same, truth, these same two truths should spill over into the content of what is said. Until this happens, we're not, we're not going to see what has been absent from evangelical Christianity for hundreds of years. And when it manifests itself, we're going to see it, we're going to see it again. What we need, the need of the hour, is apologetics on fire. What we need is scholarship on fire. What we need is preaching on fire. We need minds on fire. We don't need cold intellectual, cold scholasticism. We need scholarship on fire. Right? We don't need nice, prim arguments on, on pages. We need the whole thing burning. We need, we, we need people to see, oh, you mean this is true? We need to act like this is true. We need, we need to tell everybody it's true. Jesus said to preach the gospel to every creature. It's good news. It's true. And going back, circling back around to the first point I made, the fundamental thing about evangelism and, and apologetics is, is not to get the unbelievers to believe. The first task is, get, is to get the believers to believe. We want the believers to believe. Why, why should the unbelievers believe when we don't? Why, sh why should the unsaved believe when the saved don't believe? Or we, we may, may technically believe, but we sure don't act like we believe. Why, why don't... Um, so, getting, the issue is getting evangelicals saved, getting evangelists saved, getting apologists saved, it, or getting them to the point where they realize what it is to be saved and, and, that, and that's being communicated, that's overflowing. So, let us, let us worry less about the unbelief of the unbelieving world and worry more, pray more, preach more, concern ourselves more with the unbelief of the believing world. Father God, we thank you for your kindness to us. We commit all this to you and ask you to watch over us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.